Why don't you guys stand with me for reading of God's Word? Matthew 13, 34 and 35. Are you going to heckle me in the front row the whole time, G? You told me It says this, Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Let's pray. Father, this morning we ask that you would come and that you would teach us, that we would hear your words, that we would understand what it means to count the cost to be a disciple of yours, and that we would truly follow you and not turn back. Amen. Have a seat. Give you a little background on me this morning. I'm really sleepy, okay? And this has nothing to do with the message, by the way, so just go with me here. To, I, I used to, to sleepwalk and do a bunch of stuff when I was a kid, and well, right after my wife and I first got married, too. And so I haven't done this in a while, but on Friday night, I'm like asleep, and I'm dreaming that there's a light, like one of these lights, and there's a gigantic snake on top of it. Like, it has nothing to do with the message, so just ignore it when I'm done. Uh, and, and I dream this snake falls off, and lands on us in the bed, and I'm all, and I reach over and I go, look out! <laughs> so my wife sits up and goes, ah! <laughs> it's, yeah. So so then last night I had this I had this dream and like like someone took my cell phone and put it underneath the mattress and so I'm dreaming that I'm awake but I'm dreaming and that the whole bed's just vibrating, and the next thing I know I wake up and I'm walking up and down my hallway like, and I wake up and I'm like. Better go back to bed. <laughs> so I haven't gotten a lot of sleep, so we're just gonna we're just gonna go with that. Uh, we are gonna start the Gospel of John in September. Uh, so for the month of August, we are doing five parables. Okay, uh, parables are what Jewish would call a gada. It is it's illustration used by Jesus to convey deeper spiritual meanings. Uh, in the Greek world, parables were very very well known. The word parable actually comes from a Greek source, and a parable originally was any like fictitious narrative that was just a story about anything. But it eventually came to be known as any narrative that referred to anything where we might learn some spiritual or moral purpose from. Now, Jesus spoke in parables, not just because he didn't have any better way to teach and walked around telling stories. The form of a parable or a gada was actually used by rabbis for ages. And so this is how Jesus taught. And so Jews used the storytelling to get their message across. And so Jesus would use word pictures so people would understand more of what the spiritual world was like. Now, uh, in the ancient world, if you had to go and undertake one of the most serious undertakings, what do you think is the most serious undertaking in the ancient world? Talking in church. No, what, what is it? Anybody? <laughs> Teaching? What else? Grave digger. <laughs> Dave Matthews. Yeah. <laughs> oh, ha ha. That's so funny. Um, <laughs> see, now you're afraid to talk because I'm going to mock you, right? The, people, marriage, job. Actually, the most serious undertaking in the ancient world is actually going to war. I mean, we think nowadays, it's like, weren't they always fighting about something? They're all upset. Someone's getting something chopped off somewhere. You know, movies is, are like our current form of agata. They are our storytelling. And so I'm going to show you a video clip that kind of shows. And if you have kids, there's a little bit of violence in it. So, see, so in modern storytelling, what you see, there's, there is this thing that going to war, you've got to really count the cost. I mean, Mel Gibson's like, or William Wallace, is like, you know, count the cost. You know, you don't just want to jump into this. And they're like, we have. This is what's going to happen to us. Today we kind of make light of war a little bit. Little boys, you know, they're always running out with dirt clods or bottle rockets, fights or 
uh, it's California, BB guns, you know, and we're, we're shooting each other and stuff like that. We have a, have a card game named for this, and we call it the card game. War. Exactly. But in the reality, it's different. War is very, very serious, like today. I mean, the ancient world saw war as the most serious endeavor that you could undertake. Wise kings would go, and what they would do is they would count the cost of what it would take because they knew that history would record what happened and what they did. It was very serious to them. And so Jesus talks about discipleship, and he talks about following him in terms of a king going to war. And some people find that odd that Jesus would do that and stress the similarities between those two things. That if someone following Jesus is just like a king thinking about going off to war. And this is the complete difference between Christian and Hebrew thought and how this comes together. Uh, No one begins a job, Jesus says, and then quits in the middle of it. If you have your Bible, open to the book of Luke, chapter 9, verse 57. Nine fifty-seven. And this is what it says. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, that's Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of of God. I mean, at this point, what this means is that this guy is like, my dad's not yet dead. I want to take care of him until he dies. So he has no idea until he's actually going to go and follow Jesus. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Last week, uh, if you were here, we looked at the par- this parable, and you see that some people throw caution to the wind, and they sell all that they have to buy this field with treasure that is hidden in it. And that treasure represents the kingdom of God. And this parable builds on that to illustrate that if you're going to sell all you have, it should be with some- worth something that lasts, something that is worth more than your life. And this is what Jesus talks about. The Sagata is about the high cost of discipleship. Following Jesus demands total commitment of who we are. Well, you cannot just try God like those stupid bumper stickers. If you got one, you're probably going to, I'll take that off today. Turn to Luke 14. This is the parable. Luke 14, 28. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go off to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace." In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Now, when you read verses in Scripture, there's typically our Christian interpretation. And then there's also how a Jewish rabbi would have meant the interpretation. And so there's things that people just kind of leave out. They don't want to look at because we're just kind of uncomfortable with it. This uh, parable actually starts back in verse 25. So look there, and I'm going to read this to you. It says, large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he says, this is what he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brother and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. 
And you read that and you're like, what? Hate? Some of you guys are like, well, I hate my wife and my kids as it is. I'm a great disciple of Jesus, right? That's, that's not what it's saying. At all. That was a joke, by the way. That's not what it's saying at all. The, the word hate here has a different connotation to it. The, the whole ideal of what uh, this verse is talking about is the idea of first priority. It's the idea that the firstborn son was actually called the one that you love, not that you didn't love your other ones. Uh, turn to the book of Romans. Leave your finger in Luke because we're going to go back there. But turn to the book of Romans, chapter 9. And I'll give you the whole idea with it. This is also a great section of scripture on election, too. Just throwing it out there. <laughs> Romans 9.11. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. God didn't actually hate Esau. Esau was actually blessed too in his life. But the whole idea is this thing of the firstborn blessing. The firstborn son was the one that you called the one that I love. It was an issue of prominence. It was an issue of the firstborn son gets a double portion of the inheritance and the other sons don't. The firstborn son gets this. They are called the one that you love. Prominence. Much different connotation than we have when we think about it. Our commitment to Jesus must outweigh everything else. The high cost of discipleship. In Luke's gospel, Luke takes the story from Jesus' birth to the cross to the resurrection. Everything in Luke's gospel is pointing to the place of Jerusalem and the cross. And so Luke talks about these large crowds that are following Jesus. It shows his popularity. They love him. They love the miracles. They love all the stuff he's doing. They think Jesus is going to raise an army. He's going to come in and kick Rome out of Israel. And yay, here comes Jesus. And they're all happy about it. Just like we are in our lives when everything's going right and well. But these same crowds turn on Jesus when his intent isn't to raise an army, when he does something that they don't want him to do, just like we turn on Jesus and we run from God when our lives go differently than we think they should. There's an unexpected death, maybe the loss of a job, maybe your car breaks down. I even know someone who got really angry at God and, they're and they broke their nail. Why would God do this to me? And I'm thinking, God is the sovereign king of the universe. If he wanted to get you, I don't think breaking a nail is what you have in mind. You know, I'm, I'm thinking that he could, he could do better than that. And placing this parable where it's at, these large crowds, he is emphasizing the call to his way. Jesus is saying, this is my way. It's not your way. The call to radical discipleship. In Christianity, the cross is often just seen as a symbol for salvation. But it's also a symbol of death that we must die to ourselves and we follow him. Sometimes the cross has been used as an excuse for people not to follow Jesus. Oh, it's just by grace and, and I'm all covered by grace and oh, isn't the cross so wonderful? But that is not where Jesus goes. People keep sinning rather than following him. And yet in 1427 in Luke, Jesus says, anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Issue of first importance, first priority. Brad Young writes this. He says, when we dilute Jesus' call to action through the cross by spiritualizing his practical teachings, we become very far removed from preaching salvation through the cross. The image of the cross itself is this image of radical discipleship. We are called to hear God. We are called to obey Jesus. To a Jew, hearing these words from Jesus, they would understand totally what he means. Discipleship, following a rabbi in context, would be understood as an idea of social action. 
You are actually doing something. We're acting as if we are the kingdom of God. We are God's people living underneath his rule and his reign, working together, empowered by God to bring healing to the world in which we live in, which is very hurt. And this was understood in the midst of a society here that had totally abandoned God over and over and over. doesn't even sound like us today. No relevance, right? Yeah, yeah. Jesus says, follow me. Well, but I got you. Follow me. Well, maybe after I. Follow me. Well, maybe when. Follow me. That is what he says. He simply says, follow me. The issue of first importance. C.H. Dodd writes this. He says, these parables are associated by the evangelists with the call of Jesus to men to take great risks with open eyes. You go into following Jesus, eyes open, knowing he requires of us, our lives. Because our lives become so much better when we give them to him. Suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider we, whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? Jesus' call is also a matter of self-testing, looking to see if we truly want to have this relationship with Jesus, to be willing to give our lives over to what he's calling us to be. In Luke's gospel, Jesus is very close to Jerusalem. He's very close to the cross. His, the early readers would know this. And they would know that Luke is saying, following Jesus is dangerous. It is dangerous. And this, this whole idea that one must be prepared to give all for the call is implicit in this entire parable. There's an old rabbinical saying, and it goes like this, only through fire may the kingdom be attained. That sounds kind of painful. Exactly. Jesus involves everyone in, in his hearing, because he starts off like this in 1420. He says, suppose one of you. And it's supposed to make everybody who hears it go, oh, yeah, well, what, what would I do? Is he talking to me? You talking to me? You know, that kind of thing. He also uses something that's very, very common during the day, which is this tower. Everybody in the society would know what a tower was because they're an agrarian society, which means they grew crops. They had these towers that are made of stone, and they served various functions. In harvest season, you'd have this tower, and guards would sit in the top of this tower, and they would watch people who came into the fields to make sure people didn't run off with your produce. My stepdad owns a farm. And uh, it's kind of funny because people go out and they steal stuff at the farm all the time. He grows broccoli and cauliflower. I have no idea what people would want to steal that. Um, but uh, he grows snow peas. My wife goes and steals that. Uh, Why well, sit in the car going, there's bugs over there. Uh, I, I, when he has lettuce, I go, I like romaine lettuce. So I go and I, I steal the romaine lettuce. But imagine someone has like a, like a Kung Pao chicken orchard, right? <laughs> We'd be there all night stealing stuff because we don't want to go pay North China. You know, they're, they're 20 bucks for a meal. That's what the deal with the guards were. They put guards in the tower so people didn't steal their stuff. Even when the tower is unoccupied, it still gives this semblance that someone is there and they're watching like a big expensive scarecrow for people because people are dumb too. Okay? Towers uh, also would have these thick walls and it would give shade to the workers and the foremen in the middle of a hot day. Uh, they would also, they could store their tools and their valuables inside the tower so people didn't steal that. And a foreman could also sit on top of the tower and make sure that all the workers were doing their job. You know, he'd look out and he'd say, did you put cover sheets on your TPS reports? <laughs> uh, if you guys, okay, anyway. Uh, some of you guys are going, what? Just forget it. A, a tower was extremely useful, extremely useful. People would understand that. But you had to have the money and the resources to construct a tower. Verse 28, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will we not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he is, uh, see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. 
in this culture, honor and shame were huge concepts. One of, one of their greatest virtues is the avoidance of shame, of not being able to complete a task. This all points back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, our first parents, they sin against God, and they realize that they're naked. Now, Scripture is really clear that before this point, they were naked and they had no shame whatsoever. After the fall, they're exposed, and this whole theme goes through the entire Bible where they don't listen to God, and every time we are ashamed because of the sin in our life, we're exposed. It opens us up to shame. Throughout Scripture, God speaks to His people, and they've wandered away. He uses this terminology, I will expose you. In the book of Ezekiel, God says to Israel, when they're really sinning, He goes, I'm going to take your dress, I'm going to pull it over your head, and I'm going to expose you to the nations. And we're like, woo. It's like, God says that? Yeah, God says stuff like that. He's, he is not as reserved as we think He is. Okay? He, he, he says this. It's amazing the things that He actually does. So this whole thing about avoiding shame, it always points back to Adam's shame and folly. God says if you want to sin, your sin's going to get found out, and it will be exposed, and you will be ashamed. And like if you and I were to walk around naked, don't. Okay? But if you and I were to walk around naked, you can't hide anything. Not very well, anyway. You can't really hide anything, which is the beautiful thing also about marriage, is that in marriage we're supposed to be known by each other, that there's nothing we can really hide. You know, it's another statement about the honesty that's to be found there. But this idea of shame runs deep in Hebrew culture even today. It's like part of their DNA. Kenneth Bailey, he's an expert in Jewish society and culture, and he writes this. He says, a Middle East man never blames himself for anything. He does not say, I missed the train, but rather the train left me. It, it seems like this is also ingrained into us as well because we are a culture of blame. We blame everybody else for everything. Oh, it's my parents. Oh, it's my upbringing. Oh, I got the PMS. You know, oh, it's, I'm a hypoglycemic. Oh, can I say that? Whatever. Okay. Oh, I'm hyper. Oh, it's the Twinkie. The Twinkie made me freak out. You know what? I didn't know it was illegal. You know, stuff like that. It, it's like you're driving down the road and you hit somebody with your car and you're like, oh, I can't believe they stepped out in front of me in that crosswalk when I had the red light. Oh. Because we want to blame. We don't want to take responsibility. And this is kind of what they were like. The situation Jesus brings up is actually a situation for comedy. People would have laughed. They would have said, oh, that's so funny. That guy's so stupid. A farmer would not undertake construction of a tower he couldn't complete. And a king would not go to a war he couldn't win. Why? Because they didn't want to be mocked. They didn't want to be ashamed. For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. People will point at you and laugh. And if people point at you and laugh, it's awkward, right? For the Hebrew, this word is shame. It is shame. A farmer not able to complete a tower would be comparable to a king going off to war and eventually losing or surrendering. The shame is unbearable. Suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and ask for terms of peace. A king that goes to war and then see, uh, signs of peace, terms of peace, is great shame. All ancient writers warn against peace negotiated by surrender. So the audience hears this, and they would laugh, and they would mock, and they say, Oh, it's, I know Joe, he did that, he's an idiot. And, and, they'd, and they'd all be laughing about this stuff. And so they're, they're in the middle of this great joke. They're laughing. It's, oh, ha, that's so funny. And then Jesus says this, In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Ha, ha. And you want the text to say, and then it got very quiet. <laughs> because it's like, oh, oh. 
And this is the beauty of Jesus' agata, his storytelling. He does this. He says, follow me. Oh, but really, I just need to do this. Follow me. Or maybe when I'm married. Oh, follow me. Or maybe when I have a couple. Follow me. And we have all these excuses of why we don't. In most rabbinical illustrations, a king would be an allusion to God, except this one, which was one of the reasons Jesus is unique among rabbis. In some places, he would quote, he'd reinterpret older parables, and here he makes something completely new. Jesus' king is comparable to a man or a woman who must count the cost of calling themselves a disciple or a follower of Christ. Now, if you're in this room this morning and you call yourself a Christian, here's my question for you. What does it cost you? Has it cost you anything? If it has never cost you anything, no ridicule, no nothing, then you're probably doing something wrong. Or you may not be a follower. I can tell you this. I, I don't know if it's my spiritual gift or something, but I typically, I always have somebody mad at me for something. Because I always got these harebrained ideas about how we should reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And usually I'm like, let's do this or let's do that. And usually someone's like, ah, you can't do that. You know, and I'm like, and I, and I just keep pushing and going because I, I, I think reaching people with the gospel is so important. And people typically get irritated at me. So you have, you have this idea, you have the, the cost, the calling, the discipleship, uh, the self-reflection, the self-testing. And ultimately, the point of Jesus' parable is about God. It's about God, the image of returning to Him as the beginning. Hebrew stories go like this. They go beginning, middle, beginning. Anybody see the matrix? And then two and three? Okay. Uh, th- this is why the part three of the Matrix trilogy totally irritated people because it was Middle Eastern in its storytelling. It went beginning, middle, beginning. It ended where it began. And it frustrates people because we want, no, we wanted a nice little bow at the end. It's all tied up. It's all pretty. But that's not how it works. Jesus starts like this. He talks about a task. You have a task. A man thinks about a tower. A king contemplates war. Middle, a man starts to build a tower. A king goes off to war. And then he ends with this idea. Can they complete the task? The task. Jesus points to the beginning that it all starts with God. If you want to do this, allusion to being his disciple, you must count the cost with him. It points to where the beginning has to be, always with him. Now, you and I, we are saved by grace. This is true. We are also saved, though, to do good works, not that we are saved by them. Any person who claims to follow Christ must follow Christ and not just give lip service to this. I was talking to this guy yesterday. as I was doing this wedding, and there's this guy who comes in. He's all tatted up, you know, and I, I think he looks really cool. And, and, I, and I said, we're talking about some stuff, and, and, and he asked me about element. So I was kind of explaining this to him and stuff. And, and he says, and he goes, so Christian, he goes, what does that mean? And I go, oh, great conversation. Thanks for the question. You know, <laughs> it's like, just tee me up right here. I'm ready to go. <laughs> and, and so I, I talked to him about it. And he goes, oh, he goes, huh? He goes, I used to work for a guy who claimed to be a Christian. And he goes, he, we would have this price for this thing. And then I was supposed to sell it for this. And then I was supposed to jack up an interest rate. And I was supposed to do this. And I asked him, I thought you were a Christian. He goes, and my boss looked at me and said, this is business. And I went, I said, that's not us. <laughs> I said, Christianity is our whole life. It's not just this one. If you're going to follow Jesus, you don't have one standard here and one standard. It, you follow Jesus. That's how it works. Uh, we, we live as he expects his disciples to live. Jesus' whole example here is 
on top of all the other things, it's also about human responsibility. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, it says this, So then men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. Where the, where the king is a man who must count the cost of an endeavor, the person building a tower must consider whether he can complete it. And we must ask ourselves, have we truly counted the cost to follow Christ? And this is the exact opposite of what American culture teaches you about Christianity. I mean, I, I got this, this can of stuff called Fix a Flat in My Garage. And if, you run, if your tire goes flat, you stick this on there, you'll... And it fills it up and it puts goop in there and you can go around on your tire some more. This is how we portray Jesus to America. Oh, Jesus is the fix of flat for your spiritual life. Oh, you're feeling a little run down? Put a little Jesus in it. <laughs> Sir, that's, that's what we do. Jesus is the fix of flat for your spiritual life. He's going to reinflate you. He's going to make you feel better. You know, all your dreams will come true. This is a false gospel. It is a false gospel. I mean, what happens is people buy into this, and then they get mad because their 401k tanks, or the, their marriage doesn't go right, or the Patriots lose the Super Bowl, or you, or you break a nail, or, or something. And they're like, oh, well, this Jesus doesn't work, because it's not Jesus. That's not following Christ. That is the whole way that we just teach Jesus is voodoo. Okay, I'm good. Jesus is about your entire life. In truth, I'll tell you, Jesus, when you follow him, usually makes your life harder. Because he calls us to something greater than where we are and something bigger than where we have ever been. And when you, it is oh so much more rewarding, though, when you live like that. This parable brings us to a place of self-inventory, personal assessment. Do you want to give your life to Jesus because it will cost you everything? But in reality, can you really afford not to? And you've got to think, imagine you're a king. You're you. And all of a sudden, you've got a king called God coming at you. Are you going to be able to beat him? No, you can't even keep your nails on your fingers. You know, what are you going to do with that? Let me read you this. Ephesians 3, 16 through 19. Paul says this, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all of the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. Everything costs more than you think. Everything. But you can never begin to imagine the fullness of God when He begins to work in your life. I mean, will you be His disciple? Will you count the cost? Have you counted the cost? Jesus says, follow me. Well, wait, I just got to follow me. Well, let me first just... Jesus says, follow me. Follow me. Have you counted the cost? Has He begun to do a work in your life? What excuses have you given Him? To not follow. And that's my thing this morning. We always come to this place. And I want to give you a little bit of time to reflect on that. Think about that. You know, what is the high calling of Jesus in your life? And where does it call you to? And how does it call you to live differently than you live today? Where is that? Will you be his disciple? Will you count the cost? Because Christianity has to stop being a one-day thing where we go to church on a Sunday. It has to be an everyday outpouring of Christ living in our lives. So we're going to come to this place of communion. Uh, the band's going to come up. And communion is a place where we break the cracker and it represents Christ's body that was broken for us. We dip it in the wine or the grape juice, which is representative of his blood that was shed for us. Where we come to this place and re we reflect and we say, you gave everything for me, so I want to give everything back to you. 
Uh, we're going to worship God through communion. We're going to worship God through songs. The band's going to play a couple songs. Hopefully you can take some time to reflect during that and worship God in song. We're going to worship God through prayer. If, if you're in this place and you're like, I want to follow Jesus, but I have all these things, there's going to be some elders in the back of the room, and they will pray with you, and they will help you begin to walk through this. And we're going to worship God through giving. There's offering boxes on the side wall in the back of the room. And we're also going to worship God through fellowship. When we're done, you don't have to run out of here. Stay and hang out. But I will tell you, this is what I tell you every week, it is so much more important living and worshiping Jesus outside these walls than inside these walls. What you do out there is much more important than what takes place in here. Because people out there will see you following Jesus by how you live outside these walls. That's what people need to see. Will you follow? Let's pray. Father, this morning, we ask as your people that we would understand more of what it means, the high calling of who you are in our lives. That we would trust you to be our God. That we would follow you as your disciple and we would lay everything at your feet. That we would hold to the truths that you have given to us. And that you would truly make us into the people that you call us to be. Have people be able to see you through us. Help us to honor your name and not bring shame. Amen.